Tonight's talk is an interesting one for me, uh, especially because, you know, as the more we've been talking about long-term thinking, one of the main questions that we always get is, you know, what do you mean 10,000 years? There's not going to be people in 10,000 years. And you actually start asking people what they mean by that, like, well, you know, climate change. And you, really? Will climate change mean there's no people? Um, and so, and if you look at evidence, you know, in the Steven Pinker sense of, all, all the past is actually way harder than, than the future is, and the present is always better than the past on, on, if you look at it on the big curves through history. Yet, it's never, our, it's never our intuition that the future is better than the past. We always think of the good old days as the good old days. So I'm very interested to hear what Andrew has to say about hope. <laughs> The conversations at the Interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Thanks for the invitation and to all of you for coming. Thanks to Stuart Brand for will, being willing to have a conversation later. I feel like um, you're going to know better than I do almost everything we talk about here, so I'm gonna keep it relatively short and then we'll have a conversation and then we'll open it up for questions. Um, so who am I? I'm, as was mentioned, I'm a philosophy professor. I'm visiting at the Center for Advanced Study. I'm also working on this book on hope, mostly related to Immanuel Kant and some of his followers. The reason I'm interested in the topics we're looking at tonight is in a way because these enlightenment figures were themselves the first people to really get interested in them. So how should we think not so much about eternal life and the eschaton, but rather about future and the prog and sort of the progress of the species and the philosophy of history in general, where technology plays a role. Also interested in the fact that the Enlightenment figures were in a way the ones to open what you might call the moral we, the circle of the moral we or us, the people, the things that we count as having moral status. It's not just me, it's not my family, my tribe. There are reasons to think that we should go out to nation state or maybe even all rational beings. Enlightenment philosophers didn't succeed in going all the way to members of the species. They were mostly sexists and racists, but they gave us the seeds for doing that, and we are, in a way, indebted to the Enlightenment philosophers. So I'll talk a little bit more about the moral we in a second. And this book is, in a way, related insofar as uh, we asked... So it's an edited volume where I wrote a piece and the introduction. We asked younger philosophers to think a little bit about food, and inevitably, a lot of them started thinking about um, expanding the moral we to non-human uh, beings. And so the debate about animals, but there's also stuff about artificial ingredients. And uh, there, there's a really great long now kind of piece in here, maybe the one that's had the most discussion. There was a New York Times summary of it and then about 900 comments. It's a guy arguing that in 100 or 200 years, when we have the capacity, if we have the capacity, we should, we should morally phase out the carnivores. So not just stop eating meat ourselves, but phase out all carnivorism, even in the animal kingdom. 
Um, I don't know what would happen to the trophic cascade at that point, but it's sort of this if question. If we could do it, should we do it? He argues yes. Uh, and then um, I'm also participating in a grant project where we're looking at hope and despair and optimism and pessimism and funding uh, projects ranging from neuroscience to philosophy to religious studies to playwriting and filmmaking. So I'm in the middle of all that right now. Here's what I'm going to do tonight give you some boilerplate about the Anthropocene, uh, which may be familiar to many of people in this audience. Uh, then I'm gonna talk about the concept of hope, optimism, and at the place where they start to come apart, what they mean in the contemporary context. I'll sketch an account of rational hope, and then I'll give you what Kant would call a moral argument, and you'll see what that is, for a kind of hope, even if you're pessimistic, in the context of the Anthropocene. I'm obviously not a climate scientist or a geologist or a geoscientist, so I'm not going to tell you how we will make it through the Anthropocene and its various challenges, but I'm gonna talk about the role a certain kind of hope might play in doing that. So here's the boilerplate. Um, the Holocene is the recent era, and it's recent in the long now sense of about 12,000 years ago, started then, and isn't officially over, so the relevant scientific groups have not approved the thought that is being suggested now by a number of different geologists that we replace it with the kind of step change to the Anthropocene or Anthropocene. Um, the period in which humanity, Anthropos, becomes as impactful as a geological force. In the stratosphere, in the atmosphere, in the hydrosphere, the biosphere, and even down to the lithosphere, there is evidence of us and will be in the planet um, forever. And so um, people debate a little bit about when to start dating it, but 1945 seems like a natural point when we started with nuclear and the various effects that that has had. Um, so we'll see, they're actually meeting, uh, one of the relevant scientific associations is meeting this year to consider whether to formally adopt the idea of the Anthropocene. In popular parlance, uh, it became kind of prominent with this article by Oliver Morton in 2011 in The Economist. Um, there's now 200 newspaper and journal articles with that in the title just in 2015. Um, I don't need to say too much about the nature of the crisis. I think we all know the sort of big picture. We're in the midst of the sixth great extinction, about 100,000 species per year. At least some of that is our doing. There's a general consensus coming out of the 2009 Copenhagen um, meeting that we need to keep any rate, uh, rise in temperature below what they call the guardrail of two degrees Celsius. So the two degree guardrail. Um, without doing that, we face potentially catastrophic feedback loops and all sorts of nonlinear progressions into runaway warming, which would lead to Nobody really knows exactly. There are attempts to model four degrees and eight degrees, but there's an admission that it's not really clear what to think about that. Uh, it's certainly not controversial that even with the two degrees, which is going to produce 20 feet of sea rise, we'll have some big changes. It'll affect, of course, the global poor the most, the people in Bangladesh and Vietnam and so forth. Um, more locally, it will also affect Silicon Valley. So it looks like a lot of great infrastructure and resources. I think Intel survives, and NASA. Uh, 
But that's just, that's just 55 inches, the, the red there. So 55 inches around five feet, a little less than five feet. And Silicon Valley, Margaret will be happy that Stanford looks okay. Um, here's 25 feet, so we won't be standing here anymore. Uh, yeah, that's right, at a pool sidebar. Um, real estate prices go even higher, presumably. Um, and then the IPCC makes it clear that even if we stop relatively soon, um, we end up still with a lot of progression in terms of effects, even into a long now, several millennia of sea rise temperature, ice melting, and so forth. Here are some of the numbers. We've already burned 2,100 gigatons 2,100 billion tons since the Industrial Revolution. Of This is just CO2, so I'm setting aside the other greenhouse gases. To stay under the two-degree guardrail, if we want a 50-50 chance, kind of coin flip chance, then we should only burn another 1,600 billion tons. If we want a 75% chance, then only 700 billion tons. Um, what we have in proven fossil fuel reserves is something like 2,800 billion tons. And you know, people try to put a money value on that. I don't even know how to think about $15 trillion. But the thought is there are these assets that are stranded there, and it's going to be very hard to convince people who have access to them and rights on them not to bring them up. Um, so that's our situation. If we don't convince them not to bring it up, then we end up with something like this, potentially. Uh, now, yeah, now maybe the real estate prices go down um, because it's in San Francisco archipelago. Um, that's a kind of business as usual picture. Other people suggest a kind of business as usual plus innovation. So Rex Tillerson, the CEO of Exxon, recently said famously that climate change is just an engineering problem. You might remember Jeb Bush in the, in the uh, primaries at some point said climate change We'll be fine. At some point, two guys in a garage will figure out what we need to do and we'll fix it. So the kind of, you know, we will be able through innovation to fix it. There might be something right about that, but it's a little bit sort of naive sounding. Then there's the revolution on the other side, the picture according to which we have to rapidly decelerate and stop using all the carbon that we're using. And also for justice purposes, let the poorer nations, the developing nations, use the rest of it, that 700 billion tons that we could still use. So we have to shift carbon credits over there and radically change our ways. And then there's a couple of different efforts to talk about what you might call the good Anthropocene or the soft landing Anthropocene. Um, people who think that, yeah, we need to reduce and so forth, but there might also be some innovations that we could introduce in terms of geoengineering. Oliver Morton, the guy who wrote the um, piece in The Economist, just came out with a book on geoengineering. Um, Stuart, in the talk at the interval last January with Paul Sappho, mentioned something about this idea that we could spray sulfates up into the atmosphere and that this might help prevent some of the effects of the greenhouse gases, at least for a little while. Some people worry that this is playing God. Uh, I noticed that you, in the last version of the whole Earth catalog, say, we are as gods at this point, and we, we might as well get good at it. <laughs> so it's kind of, you know, owning up to the situation. So let's just call, so those are the different ways in a kind of middle way picture. Let's just call the outcome that we want, however we get there, carbon justice. Let's just call it carbon justice. We'll think of that as staying below the guardrail and also giving the people who haven't had much carbon burn a chance to burn 
um, as much as we have. Uh, okay, so that's our goal, carbon justice, let's say. I mean, one thing you might ask is what would motivate us to take that on as a goal? Um, after all, we're talking about not just people who are spatially extended far away from us, the global poor, um, the southern hemisphere for the most part, but also temporally far away from us. So I talked about expanding the moral we. Why do we expand the moral we, the us that we care about, the people who have standing into non-existent people, future generations? Philosophers like these kind of puzzles. They don't exist, they don't have rights, we don't owe them anything, so why are we so worried about it? Maybe we should just go with business as usual, but that feels wrong somehow. We don't tend to think that we have to make decisions in an effort to produce as many well-functioning future people as possible. We don't think of condoms as weapons of mass destruction. Um, we don't think that preventing people from existing is a bad thing. So why do we worry or feel we have obligations in some way to future people? So there are some puzzles there that philosophers get into. Suppose we do, though, think that we have some sort of obligation to keep things going. Maybe we just think it's like an intrinsic good that there be human beings on the Earth. Um, then we'll have to try to see how we can get to carbon justice. The other problem here is it's a massive collective, collective action issue. So not only do we have to worry about what other nations are going to decide, and the Paris Treaty did get some distance in that regard, um, but we have to also worry about kind of defectors in our own communities. You know, I, what if I try really hard and cut way back and then my neighbor does and it looks like he's not going to? Um, in a lot of these game theoretic contexts when we're talking about prisoners' dilemmas and so forth, you're in a state of ignorance. In this case, we're not even in a state of ignorance. It looks clear that a lot of people are gonna defect. It looks like some nations that feel they are owed certain carbon credits may not toe the line. So I think that there's a, you know, there, here's carbon justice. We feel like we want it for some reason. We're obliged morally to go for it. Um, but there's a threat of demoralization. I think we all feel this. My students certainly feel this. And I mean that in two ways, sort of double entendre. Demoralized psychologically, going after this just starts to seem like something that's too hard. It's enervating, especially when I don't know if anybody else is gonna really do what I'm trying to do. And then, so you lose your moral, the sort of moral um, driving force behind your activity. You start to become apathetic or maybe opportunistic in certain ways. You eat, drink, and be merry because we're not gonna be able to fix this. So that's a sort of bad thing from a moral point of view, and yet it seems to be something that we all face and in spades when you think about something like the Anthropocene. So it would be great if we could just convince ourselves, sort of leap of faith style, that you know when we act, everyone else will act, and somehow we'll get there and carbon justice will be achieved, but that just looks irrational. It looks like bad faith. I mean, maybe there's a pragmatic reason for going in that direction in some cases, but this looks like it'd be hard to do and also um, a little bit um, irrational. And so what I wanna do is develop a conception of hope that might play a certain sort of motivational role that allows us to keep going even in the face of these issues regarding the Anthropocene and the collective action problem, but doesn't require kind of irrationality. So let me give you a brief, brief history of this concept. Elpis is the, ger the German, the Greek term that is 
often translated as either expectation or hope. What's interesting there is that conflation in the classical period, expectation and hope are not clearly distinguished. Expectation, something like what we call optimism, you expect something to happen. There's also an ambivalence in the classical period. So as Pandora's jar suggests, Zeus gives Pandora the jar, she opens it, she's the kind of Greek version of the biblical Eve, she opens it, all these curses come out and are visited upon humanity. She looks inside and there's one thing left, and it's hope. And Hesiod doesn't tell us whether that's the thing that consoles us when we have to face all of these other curses or whether it's another curse of its own. And different people go different directions in the classical period. Euripides and Plato seem to think of hope as something to be avoided. Nietzsche sums up their view as this, Zeus did not want man to commit suicide, no matter how much the other evils might torment him, but rather to go on letting himself be tormented. To that end, Zeus gives us hope. A very <laughs> pleasant thought. So the ambivalence continues throughout the ancient period. Aristotle says hope is just a waking person's dream. The Stoics think that to, that hope is just the opposite side of fear and that you only cease to fear if you cease to hope. So just count, work on your own moral character and don't worry about things outside yourself. In the Christian period, you get hope becoming a kind of virtue that's directed towards the afterlife and so it's a holy good thing. In the modern period, here's Hobbes, here's Descartes. Um, they think it's, a, here's Locke, they think it's a good thing, but they also conflate it in the classical way with expectation or optimism. They think of it as something that we should expect. And part of that, I think, is that probability theory was not really developed until uh, 16th, 17th century, so a lot of these people aren't necessarily making a big distinction between the possible and the probable in the way that I want to in a minute. Um, Probable actually meant in the medieval period, if you said something was probable, what you meant was something like, a lot of the authorities have said this. A very different notion of the probable than we have. And then Spinoza, who actually goes back to the stoic position and says, eradicate hope. <laughs> um, Oxford English Dictionary really pisses me off because it makes the conflation and it's still there, it's still up there too. Um, Hope is the expectation of something desired, desire combined with expectation, confidence. I think that's wrong. So let's start with optimism. I just want to sort of get your intuitions going about what a sort of common sense notion of optimism might be. Optimism that something is going to occur looks, to me anyway, like something like this. It's a desire that the thing occur. You desire nice weather tomorrow and you think it's probable you think the odds are better than 50-50 that it's going to rain, that it's going to be sunny tomorrow. So it's something you want and it's something you think is probable. You might even think it's certain, so you're pretty sure that 2 plus 2 is going to continue to equal 4 tomorrow. You can say, I'm optimistic that 2 plus 2 will continue to equal 4. So that looks like a, a way of thinking about optimism that's kind of um, at least a sketch, I think, of our common sense notion. In the 17th century, after those other old guys we just looked at, Leibniz comes along and he is a good mathematician and he knows a little bit more about probability theory and he develops a theory of explicitly of optimism, first one to use the word, interestingly. So expectation, optimism, he uses that word. In French, in this 1714 theodicy essay where he talks about the goodness of God, the liberty of men, and the origin of evil. So according to him, he's got an independent proof that God exists. 
from the armchair, it's an a priori proof, so you got God, God's the omni, 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 right, really good, really powerful, really smart, so God, if God makes anything, is gonna make the best thing, so this must be the best thing, the best possible world of all the worlds that were available. So if there's something that looks bad to us, that had to be there, it couldn't have been better. This is the best possible world. Sounded good became a big sort of movement in Germany, the optimism movement, until um, 1755. So the way they were operating was sort of theoretical optimism. We have reasons and arguments for being optimistic, and we should also think of it as a practical or lived optimism. Even in the face of evil or suffering, we should think, you know, this really is for the best, and somehow it'll work out even if we're not exactly clear sometimes how that's going to go. And that sort of ran into 1755 Lisbon earthquake 9.0 on the Richter scale. Um, and it wasn't just punishing the bad people, it actually occurred on All Saints Day at 10 a.m. when most of the good people were in church and the churches were the things that collapsed. And so almost everybody in church died. The few who survived, along with the bad people who weren't in church, come out <laughs> and try to help the people who you know, are suffering. They run down, if you know Lisbon, it's sort of down on a slope towards the port. They run down there and 40 minutes later, a tsunami comes and inundates the rest of them. Uh, one third to one half of the population dies immediately, 85% of the city destroyed. Um, Leibniz says, well, in another world, it would have been worse. <laughs> it's cold comfort, right? It's really hard to believe. And that was Voltaire's point. He writes, Candide about optimism, Professor Pangloss, and makes optimism look a bit ridiculous. So then pessimism sort of comes in, and people think, oh, we have good reason to be pessimistic. Uh, look at the evidence. And so I'm a theoretical pessimist, and I will also just live in a pessimistic way. I will fear, I will be, maybe become apathetic, I will be demoralized in the sense that I was just discussing. I will eat, drink, and marry because, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. And then the 19th century is this kind of great debate between a bunch of German guys with weird hair. Um, Hegel, the great optimist, although he doesn't look like it there. Uh, Schopenhauer, the great pessimist, who said this is actually the worst of all possible worlds. Um, Karl Marx, the optimist, you know, sort of near-term revolution, but ultimately, Justice, and then Nietzsche, um, definitely a kind of pessimist, though a complicated <laughs> um, So we have theoretical pessimism. And what I want to ask now is, do we have to kind of live the pessimism? Does that lived pessimism have to follow from our, our, the evidence that things aren't looking so good, whether we're talking about Lisbon and various earthquakes and so forth, or whether we're talking about the Anthropocene and our chances of staying under the two-degree guardrail? And I want to sort of finish the talk by talking a little bit about what it might be to live hopefully, even in the context of this rather theoretically pessimistic situation. Inspiration is Immanuel Kant, who's coming before those 19th century guys and after the 17th century people that I started with. Um, he was bald but was wearing a wig, I think, in this portrait. Um, Three questions he think are, is central, are central to philosophy. What can I know, of course? What should I do? And then, interestingly, what may I hope? What is it permitted to hope? And he thinks this actually brings together the first two questions in an important way. 
In the 20th century, this is this great Kantian Ernst Bloch, who even in the midst of World War II, he was a professor in Berlin of all places, writes a three-volume work on the principle of hope and um, continues a kind of Kantian picture. He says, the work of this emotion, hope, requires people who throw themselves actively into what is becoming to which they themselves belong. So that's the kind of tenacious picture of hope even in the face of pessimistic situation that I want to try to talk a little bit more about. So we talked about optimism. The counterpart notion, I think, in hope, with respect to hope, is this desire for the thing. So you still think it's good and desirable, but instead of believing that it's probable or estimating it as probable or certain, you think that it's merely possible. So this gets us away from the classical conflation of the two notions. You can hope for something that you don't think is at all probable. I might hope that I'm going to I don't know, upload my mind onto a computer after the singularity and live forever. But I don't feel optimistic that that's going to be the case, right? So there's a difference between these concepts, hope and optimism. And of course, there's a difference with respect to wish. I might wish that the Warriors had won the finals. That sounds coherent. But if I now say, I know the Warriors lost, but I really hope that they won, you would think that was Somehow I just didn't get the concept, right? So um, <laughs> wish is different from hope as well. That can't be the whole story about hope, though. So there's this interesting point that even someone who despairs, the opposite of hope, might desire the thing and believe that it's possible. So what else do we have to add to get genuine hope? I like to take this case from this movie. People in the literature have um, brought this up before I did, but I like the case. The Shawshank Redemption, some of you will have seen it. It's a Stephen King story turned into a movie. We've got two characters. Both of them have a life sentence. Both of them really want to get out. Both of them think it's possible, but one of them succumbs to fear and despair, and the other is sort of motivated by hope to start digging behind the bed every night until he finally gets out through the sewers and um, ultimately feels a lot better than he did when he was inside. <laughs> so what's the difference? It looks like, and, and this is actually a quotation from the, from the movie, it looks like Red, the guy who despairs, um, has the same estimation of the possibility or probability of, what's, of what they both want, but sort of um, articulates it differently. So Red says, I grant you that it's possible. So I grant you that it's possible, but it's so unlikely. The odds are so long. It's going to be so hard. Andy says, I grant you that the odds are so long, but it's possible. It focuses on the possibility. So what I want to suggest is that um, we can call this focus on the positive possibility, that hope involves, as opposed to despair, actually focusing, attending to the fact that something is possible, letting that motivate a certain kind of um, maybe effort to look for pathways or projects, start digging behind the bed, um, getting yourself involved, thinking about that positive possibility and sort of holding it before yourself in a way that might motivate action, positive emotion. But it's not irrational. It's not just producing optimism in yourself. You still acknowledge the fact that this is an extremely unlikely outcome, and yet you remain hopeful. So let's suppose that's a sort of rough and ready picture of what hope is. How does it help in the face of something like the Anthropocene? So let's say we hope for carbon justice, right? That was the thing that we said we wanted, two-degree guardrail, fair distribution of what remains, 
say we hope for that. That means, according to what I was just telling you, that we believe it's possible, certainly seems possible. We want it. We even think we're morally required to go for it in this case. Um, and we tenaciously focus on that possibility. We consider it, we fantasize about it, we imagine what it would be like to get there. We think about how our hopes would be dashed if we didn't get there and what the consequences would be. Um, but we keep it rational. We don't go into a kind of optimism that suggests that our evidence is different than it is. So it's a hopeful pessimism, if you will. Um, and how does that avoid getting into demoralization in the way that I suggested sometimes we can in the face of long odds. Well, I mean, if you're tenaciously focused on the positive possibility, I think it's very psychologically natural to then start thinking about, as I said before, pathways, ways in which you might be involved, or at least someone might be involved in getting to the ultimate outcome, getting out of the prison, for instance. So once you start thinking that way, you kind of build yourself and maybe your community, the people working with you, into the hope. So you start hoping not just for this outcome, but for that outcome and that I contribute to it in some way. So I hope to contribute through all of this effort to the bringing about of this outcome. So with respect to carbon justice, all the little things I try to do, I want them to make a difference, something we hear a lot from a lot of people, certainly my students. I want to make, how do I make a difference? That seems really key, a kind of consequentialist picture. Now, I think that when we look closely at the odds and how much we can really do as individuals, even if we say, yeah, I'm hoping to make a difference for carbon justice, we can still face demoralization. We can still face these long odds and sort of think, yeah, actually, it's not going to matter much. So here's the final twist. I'm talking about hope for specific outcomes and just skipped hope as a virtue for the sake of time. I can go back to that if we want to in the question and answer. So here's the final twist. Um, as we know, there are some systems, especially in nature, but also in culture and commerce, that are not linear systems. This is something that actually comes up in a lot of the discussions here, I think, in the long now context. Sometimes it's not just about aggregates and linear progressions, but rather about feedback loops and sudden shifts and thresholds and trigger points and so forth. Now, what is the chance that you and your the people you convince around you or the people who are working around you for carbon justice are going to be on a tipping point or a threshold. Very small, right? Even smaller than the possibility that I was talking, the probability of that one possibility I was talking about before, that you'll make some sort of difference. The thought here is it's still possible. It's still possible that you'll make this huge difference, that your small actions will come at just the right moment such that the system trips in, across a tipping point or across a threshold and you make a big difference. I think if we focus in this hopeful way on that mere possibility, and it is possible in many cases, then it will be very difficult to feel demoralized. Then it will feel, be very difficult to think, oh, I'll just sort of let this one slide. I will opportunistically go ahead and burn this carbon when I really don't need to. Um, let me just finish by illustrating this with a case, and now we're going to go back to the food situation, which is what the book was in part about. So we know that industrial animal agriculture is one of the worst greenhouse gas producers. It's worse than the entire transportation sector combined. Um, we also know it's kind of more intuitive in this context to see what I was talking about with thresholds and nonlinearity. So there's a kind of chunkiness about the supply chain in a huge opaque system like this, where it's not the case that when I stop and get a 
chicken sandwich, uh, you know, which is made up of maybe one fiftieth of a chicken, um, depending on what other things they put in there, uh, that somehow one fiftieth of a chicken dies, right? So it's not this direct correlation. Even if I have 50 sandwiches, it might not be the case that one chicken dies. There's you know, this thing going along, this system, and it hits thresholds, and at some point, some choice does have this big effect. 100,000 chickens are ordered, and the farmer produces them, and they become part of the 45 billion chickens that are processed every year. Um, so suppose I really care about the climate, or about animals, or about both, and I decide to give up on animal products. Um, facing these huge numbers makes it hard to be optimistic, makes it hard to think that you're going to be um, making a difference. That demoralization threat comes in. And what I want to suggest is that we can sort of generate, and I already sort of casually made it, but now I'm going to formally make it, um, a moral argument, what Kant calls a moral argument for lived hope that would help us avoid demoralization in this kind of case and in Anthropocene cases generally. So you can't get through a talk by a philosopher without one effort at a stepwise argument. So here's premise one. Oppy, this is the guy who's thinking about opportunistically, you know, he's demoralized and he's like, I'm just gonna eat that chicken sandwich because it doesn't make a difference. I do care about the factory farm system. I'm morally opposed to its continuation, but I'm tempted by the thought that if I make a difference, it's a minuscule difference, a tempting thought that we all have, surely. It would be demoralizing in that way that I was mentioning for Oppie to have, not to have some sort of hope that his eating choices or the choices of those he influences have a significant effect on the factory farm system. So I was suggesting, unless we can focus on the positive possibility that we make a significant difference, we might face demoralization. Demoralization is morally undesirable, especially if the end in question is something we think is morally required, or duties to future generations and so forth. So given the facts about the system that is chunky and not linear in the way I was suggesting earlier, suggest that there's a moral advantage in having rational hope that at least one of the food choices you make throughout your life, maybe you have 20 or 30,000 choices left, at least one of those choices is going to be a threshold choice, where you actually get to decide whether the system shunts forward, whether those 100,000 chickens get ordered or not. The threshold chicken is yours at that moment. You don't know which, and so you sort of then try to abstain across all of your choices and have this hope that one of them makes a huge difference, 100,000 chickens um, or not, depending on how you choose. So other things equal rational hope that at least one of the food choices he makes or influences is a threshold choice becomes morally justified. So for moral reasons, we can hope for that. It's not, it's not optimism. It's not the claim that that is going to happen. That would be crazy, right? Think about the odds. But I'm suggesting it's both morally justified, there's a compelling moral reason to focus on that mere possibility in the way that hope does in order to keep us from being demoralized. Thank you. So um, Stuart wrote in 1999 a book where he has a chapter on what he calls tragic optimism. So I thought I would start off our discussion by just kind of asking you about this. So the quotation's up there for them to read. You say, um, 
My, my worry, actually, I want to look at it on here because there's a little extra bit. My worry is that the pessimists love being right so much that they avoid any efforts that might make them wrong. Look, it all depends on what time frame you look at. Everything has been going to hell as long as anyone can remember. Empires are always dying, your friends are always dying, but in the long sweep of history, on average, life has been getting steadily better for as long as you care to look. And then actually the ellipses, what you say next is, does anyone here really want to live in medieval times, have rotten teeth, eat turnips, and die at age 27 of exhaustion? <laughs> so short-term worse, long-term better. Maybe the way to resolve it is tragic optimism. I would settle for a world of tragic optimists. So it looks like what I'm defending is a kind of hopeful pessimism in the face of what looks like sort of not so great evidence about the Anthropocene and it looks like you're defending tragic optimism. And I wonder if this is just a difference in temperament or hmm. the way we were raised or something like that, um, or whether it's a difference in the evaluation of the facts involved, um, or whether it's that we're both pragmatists of some sort and we think we got to find a position that will look intellectually honest, but still people keep people invested in their projects and trying to do something and not being demoralized. And so we just went a different direction, but same goal. There are certainly optimists and pessimists, and I uh, find that <clears throat> when I'm wrong, I'm often wrong because I was optimist, more optimistic than I should have been. Are you pessimistic in that respect, just in terms of the judgments you make in life? And you can ask I'm yourselves where you fall on this. At all times. Say again. I'm completely objective at all times. <laughs> uh, no, you're not. I, I, I actually know a number of facts and don't have right about the anthropocene. But. Uh, I, I think I, I mean, you know, I do this natural thing where I think I'm an above-average driver, just like 85% of people do. Uh, so I'm optimistic, maybe too much about myself and my abilities. But I do, yeah. I guess I tend towards. Maybe it was because I was raised in a broadly Calvinist tradition. I, I feel pessimistic. Mm. Even if I've thrown off the tradition, the pessimism remains. Mm. Yeah. Tradition of pessimism is an interesting concept. Um, you use moral a lot. Do you distinguish moral from ethical, just no. so I know? Mm -mm. Not it's at all. Greek. Same word. Wow. I think of it as just Greek and Latin. Yeah. Huh. OK, great. <laughs> That. I mean, really, it is. I mean, moralitas is the translation for ethicos. Mm -hmm. Do you buy, and you quoted the long-term sort of optimistic, short-term pessimistic yeah. perspective. Do you yeah. agree with that? Well, what I was suggesting, I mean, it depends the, on... The way, uh, you know, one of our board members who is a professional futurist, Paul Sappho, who's watched himself and other people be wrong and right and wrong and right, yeah. you know, predicting things, and he said, in the near term, the uh, uh, optimists are always wrong, and in the long term, the pessimists are always wrong. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, and it's just something he's watched. And you know, he's also the one who said, never mistake a clear view for a short distance. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> of something you know is going to happen, yeah. but you, know, you think it's going to happen next week, and it's actually next century. Yeah, so I mean, I take your point about the medieval period and you know, the accomplishments that we've achieved since then. I guess I do find, so maybe it is in the end not so much a temperamental thing, but my sense of the evidence, in which case I should defer to you as someone who knows much more about the empirical side of this, but my sense of the evidence that I was presenting from Copenhagen and from some of those articles suggests that the Anthropocene is looking pretty precarious for us. And 
you know, there are a lot of pretty prominent people who are not so optimistic about our chances. I mentioned to you Jared Diamond. He's, yeah, that's true, Jared he, is. Yeah, he says he's an optimist, but he says, what I mean by that is that I think we are 51% likely to survive for the next 100 years. <laughs> so it's like, just barely optimistic. And yet, even in his book, Collapse, Jared points out that these various civilizations have collapsed, but that each one of them did not know about the others and why they collapsed. And, the current global civilization has all of those stories as part of the cautionary tales we tell each other. Um, yeah, that's right. So I, I guess I'm curious what your vision is. So I characterized you as being an, being an advocate of the soft landing Anthropocene or the, the good Anthropocene. So if we combine innovation with reduction, we could make it through. Um, you know, that would be a whole discussion. And yeah, I'm yeah. completely persuaded the good Anthropocene is well underway and happening this century. The sixth extinction is not underway and is probably not going to happen. Okay. Six, these extinctions are when 75% of all species go extinct. Mm -hmm. Really serious stuff has to happen, like asteroid collisions and you know, major volcanic periods and so on, none mm -hmm. of which is happening. If the comet hits us, I mean, okay, in the Anthropocene, we are as gods and might as well have to get good at it. Um, it used to be that asteroids, uh, you know, 66 million years ago, can do in all the dinosaurs. Didn't do in life, they, they did in a lot. It's true. Uh, asteroids are now easily detectable and relatively easily diverged. We've had two or three talks by people right. who are yeah. you know, setting out to do that. Um, one of the best early climate scientists, William Ruderman, uh, has basically pointed out we've probably seen our last glacial maximum. Yeah. The ice ages where the ice comes down, which is a big event. Yeah. And there was a while when Steven Schneider and others in the 70s thought that that might be coming. He then reversed it when he mm -hmm. looked deeper into the data. And it is now the case that probably that will never occur again, as long as humans would rather it didn't. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it happened inadvertently because of rice farming and various things that we've done through time that yep. put up more of these greenhouse gases that prevented what should have been the interglacial that is supposed to have ended by now, right. is not ending. Yeah. <laughs> so the basic frame is, you know, I think, just factually yeah. not, not bad. What one does with that is, I think, bear down not so much on the attitude as on the details of the situation. And so if you can buy some time with putting some sulfur dioxide in the stratosphere while we're cleaning up, Right. The atmosphere where, you know, X hundred thousand people a year die of the particles coming out of these coal-fired right. plants. Right. Uh, when we fix that, more sunlight is getting in, mm -hmm. and so it's getting hotter. So you can offset that with one-thirtieth the amount of stuff in the stratosphere. That'd be great. Um, I think David Keith, climatologist, makes a very good case that air capture of carbon dioxide yeah, yeah. Uh, is hard but plausible. And he's working on it, many people are working on it. And I think in the scope of the century, mm -hmm. that probably will come to pass. In probably, conservation, yeah. I see things, more things getting better than getting worse, especially in the context of the last 200 years. Yeah. So, sorry to get into all of that, but yeah, yeah, I think no, the details really count. Here's a symmetry question I have for you, and then we can start to yeah. ask around. Um, it's pretty clear that in your, when you're in a terrible situation, hope is a really good thing to have. Right. Is it the case that when you're in a good situation, despair is a good thing to have? Many do it. 
and they become weirdly self-destructive and other people destructive yeah. and so on, but it can't be a good thing to have. That seems right. I mean, if despair is just believing something's possible but and desiring it, but somehow not focusing on the possibility and instead just kind of giving up on it, thinking that the long odds make it very make it such that we shouldn't waste time on it, then that does seem irrational to me. I mean, um, one question might be, if we're optimistic about something, are we also hoping for it? Um, and actually, I think of hope as a, a, just a broader character a category than optimism. So we might be, we might think it's you know likely the case that it's going to um, be sunny tomorrow, but we might also still hope for it. So I think in an, if optimism is right about the human future, there's also a place for hope there. But I agree that a lot of this comes down to empirical details. You rightly infer, induce from the past, the mm -hmm. long past, some, some things about the future. I guess my sense as a total non-expert is that the way that scientific papers that I look at casually talk, at least sometimes, is as though this is some very unusual rupture, that this is not, you know, past behavior cannot predict our way out of this one. And that I'm not saying it's not possible. I mean, part of the picture was that it's possible we should focus on that, but that it's not clear that we can say that it's likely. There's <clears throat> your project of, of hope, on hope and optimism is one of the very few such things I know that has attracted this significant amount of money mm -hmm. compared to the things that focus on the terrible threats that we face <laughs> and how are we going to head them off and how can I frame yeah, this thing I love working on anyway and there's somehow a climate change <laughs> yeah. in the mode. Yeah. There's a lot of that going on. I think that's right, yeah. So, you know, Optimism and pessimism are sort of operational modes, as near as I can tell. So Andy Grove writes a wonderful book called Only the Paranoid Survive, mm. talking about running a business. Mm -hmm. And boy, is there a lot to that. My wife, who's a serial entrepreneur, is in that category. She's always focused on what she knows could very, very likely go wrong right. and heading it off before it does that. And yet, she has the optimism to start business after business. Mm -hmm. Not all of them which su succeeded and didn't slow her down a bit. Mm -hmm. So there's some kind of, I think, maybe we are getting to the pragmatism now, balancing of yeah. using these, both of these things yeah, maybe that's right. in a way that keeps things exploring and moving forward. I'm curious, just one last question, if, if you would be open to, so I was trying to avoid what I was calling irrationality, so I wanted to focus on hope and think that that's rational even if it's merely possible, what we're talking about. Do you think there, as a pragmatist, there are some cases in which the end is so important that even if you thought it wasn't likely, even if you thought it wasn't probable, you should still say you're optimistic about it, act optimistically about it, try to make yourself believe in a sort of irrational way. This is the kind of Pascalian you know, leap of faith picture. Um, yeah, I mean, okay. if you only play the game when the odds are always in your favor, it's not going to be that interesting a mm -hmm. game. And if you have to assume that you always only win, and the things you care about always only win, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the warriors have had it, why would I pay any more attention no, to that? No, but I'm not <laughs> saying should we act. I agree that we should act in such cases, but should we try to become optimists? Should we sort of believe even in the face of evidence that we're not in a pretty good situation? Uh, an optimist, hopefully, does not do that in the face okay. of evidence. Okay. A hopeful person does that. Yeah, okay, that's right. Yeah. And, and I think a hope, hope is more like an emotion, and, and optimism is more like, you, you pointed in terms of probability. Yeah, And I think exactly. that's probably right. Yeah. Probably right. Yeah. Um, should we do questions? And yes,
the way the way that we are going to do questions um, is that we're going to move the mic around. So raise your hand, and the mic will move to you. And then uh, while the other person is asking the question, the answer is being answered. And so these guys aren't going to call on you, but uh, one of us will hand you the mic if you're going to get it. Right, um, so so hold, while, hold your hand up and look at them. Hold <laughs> your hand up and look at them, and I'll take the first question to take the uh, time uh, while we figure out the next mic move. Um, the I think it's really worth teasing out this hope, optimism, change. I think, you know, a, a, it's, could it be that there's a, um, that there's a good human uh, idea in that if you are not optimistic about the future, that you will act to counteract it? So if you're worried about this dangerous future, which you know, every science fiction movie portrays for us, mm -hmm. will you hope for a better future for your children and act on things in a kind of a selfish, ratcheting way that as long as everyone's doing that ratcheting effect, counteracts it? And if we, if we didn't think that the future was going to be dystopic, would we just become complacent? So is it a good immune response for humanity, is what I'm asking. Has any dystopian story been as loved as Star Trek? <laughs> I'm just wondering. Blade Runner. Blade Runner, absolutely, yeah. But in terms of an ongoing thing, they got season after season, and I guess Game of Thrones has some of the quality. Mad Max. And Game of Thrones gets away with it because it's sort of saying, well, remember all those uh, fond fantasies we used to have about knights and kings and stuff? Well, they were really awful. Uh, sort of to our point about, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, everybody is uh, cruel and uh, it's a Stephen Pinker story, right. Game is of it, Thrones. Is it Mad Men dystopian? I'm sorry? Is it Mad Men dystopian? Mad Max? Mad Men. Mad Men. Mad Men. Mad Men strikes me, I mean, it was fabulous sequence of shows, um, but it struck me as a version of the present being very smug about the past. Yeah. Remember when we used to treat women that exactly. awful? Yeah, yeah. You know, at least it's a little <laughs> less awful now. Right. Uh, remember when we used to just have a picnic and leave all the trash out? Yeah. But that's the way I interpret it. It's only a little bit less awful now. That's, mm -hmm. the, that's the way I watch it. Well, isn't that long ago? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember that period. Um, this, this is another difference between us. How old are you? <coughs> Late 30s. There you go. Late 70s. Sort of young. Right. Uh, Next question, sir. I, I, yes, I had a question. Um, if, uh, if ignorance is bliss, would you consider information to be a burden? And the environment in which people are being hopeful is an environment that they can affect as, as individuals. So is uninformed hopefulness more positive than informed hopefulness? No. Um, where, what's the origin of ignorance? I thought Andrew would like that one. Bliss? Do we know? Where was that said in the Bible? Well, no, I don't know where that was said. It just seems to be, it's not a, it's not a truth. It's just something I grew up with, with that ignorance, that the ignorant are blissful and that the, uh, the meek shall inherit the earth kind of things, that ignorance is bliss. And that and People we're talking about the that, dogs that didn't uh, know they were going to die. Oh, okay. I think. Um, I think it's probably ignorance of death that is 
being talked about well, there? I just feel like we lived in we live in the information age, the the overinformed, and that often overinformed, and, and that we we often burden ourselves with so like? much information mm -hmm. that we hinder ourselves in being able to affect the environment. Uh, uh, with as much effect as an individual that's better informed to what they can do and actually affect can can actually hope to do. Um, so for what may I hope? Yeah, so I think that's interesting. I mean, from an outside point of view, you might think it'd be better for a bunch of those people not to know the facts about the Anthropocene, at least the ones I was citing, insofar as that might demoralize them in the way I was suggesting. From the inside, especially <coughs> good enlightenment sort of person, you might think, you know, no, we should go for knowledge, we should understand the theoretical situation and then make a rational choice about the lived response to it. So I think there might be an inside-outside difference there. I think don't settle for the first story you hear. Um, the only time I've done something political was when I put on a public event to dramatize overpopulation in 1969, a bunch of us starved in public. And, um, it was a tough educational week, and it was based on uh, my old teacher, Paul Ehrlich, saying that we're seriously fucked in terms of human population. It's the J-curve, it's going to go up and up and up until you know, it's all hopeless. Um, that very time when his book came out was exactly when the population curve inflected from a J to an S. Um, and it was a total waste of my starvation in the hog farm and everybody else <laughs> suffering all that week. It was just, and I should have known because Paul is a biologist, population biologist of checkerspot butterflies. Mm -hmm. And the demographers, the human demographers, uh, knew all along that there's this thing called the demographic transition, that people start to do a little better and they immediately have fewer children, they move to town, they immediately have fewer children. Uh, education gets around, more medical stuff gets around, more women immediately take the opportunity to mm -hmm. control how many children they have. And when they're not out in the country trying to make a subsistence farm work with their seven kids, they're in town trying to educate their one and a half kids. And that turned out to be the truth. And uh, you know, I bought the first kind of romantic yeah. story that I heard from yeah. Paul and later regretted it. And I've hopefully not made that mistake since. <laughs> Um, it's very easy to buy these, these over-dramatized, tough stories. So let me say something on the other side of that, which is that, look, you know, yeah, it's true that the story can change and we might be pessimistic and then learn some things and start becoming, but what would be the loss if we had been hopeful pessimists all the way along? So Fair. what I'm suggesting is this active, tenacious hope that focuses on the possibility and still acts if it turns out that we were wrong and we should have been optimists all along, nothing's been lost, right? But if we start off with the optimism and we only act optimistically because we think we have theoretical reasons to think things are gonna get better, then there's the real risk of disappointment and enervation that comes if the facts turn out to go the other way. You do want your harsh prophecies to be self-defeating prophecies. And to mm -hmm. some extent, that was the case. Mm -hmm. And so a lady who later was a girlfriend of mine, Stephanie Mills, when she graduated from Mills College, said, I'm really sorry, but I cannot have any children. And, and women in my generation think very seriously of adding to this whole human overburden of Earth. And a handsome, bright lady who that word went out. 
And she was hither and yon telling that story, and a lot of people took it seriously. As a result, in the 70s, a lot of my hippie cohorts were very cruel to their children and cruel to couples they knew that had children. But, you know, no great harm was done. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just cruelty. <laughs> and, cruelty. you know, the, the idea that we should probably um, think about in this aggregate term how many people is right for mm-hmm. a given society mm-hmm. or a given planet um, was right. And so in that sense, I think the, you know, the, the pessimism that Paul and, and Stephanie put out there was a helpful thing. Mm-hmm. So um, I have a proposition or a provocation that I think flips your analysis on its head and possibly leads us to different conclusions entirely. And that is the way you've talked about deconstructing hope and optimism is to place them before action and say that hope and optimism or demoralization modulate the possibility of action. Mm. If you flip it on its head, what if action is the important thing? Action is the thing that generates emotion. It's a completely different theory of human nature from the Western tradition. Mm. And that the action produces the hope. And if the action produces the hope, then the most important thing to think about is how do we create agency? Uh, you talk about your wife and serial entrepreneur having both um, pessimism and optimism, paranoia and hope at the same time. But where would she be if she did not actually have the agency to start a new business. If she did not have the ability, and therefore, which is where the end result leads us in a very different place, is that this becomes not an account of the individual psychological orientation towards acting in this kind of a space, but of the social institutions and the systems we put in place that enable action, even for those people who don't start from a place of hope or or optimism. I like that. I, yeah. What, 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 well, I, was, I mean, so that last part was key, I think, because initially I was going to say, look, I don't know what it would mean to say that you should think about acting first before you have any sense of what the likelihood is of the outcome or what outcome you're going for, or whether you should be hopeful or pessimistic. What you're suggesting is that agency is as much a product of what you've been brought up in and where you are as your sort of thinking and reflecting about the probabilities or the possibility in question. Um, I mean, I think that's right. I guess I would, maybe there's a kind of, there's got to be a place, and certainly in the Eastern tradition as well as the Western tradition, there is a place for adult pausing, reflecting on what you're doing and why you're doing it, ethical deliberation, right? Mm. And it looks as though there, at least, in in that moment, and I agree it is an individual moment, but it still happens. We think about whether we'll make a difference, whether it's likely the outcome that we're going for, whether we should still be hopeful despite its improbability. So I would want to talk more, a little bit more about contexts in which that looks really rarefied, but I would want to at least support the idea that sometimes, in some cases, rational adults need to do that. No, no, so I was trying to avoid faith. I think that hope is rational because it just thinks of in terms of possibilities, but it can still be motivating if you do it in the way I was suggesting. Faith looks like in the face of theoretical pessimism, you still leap <coughs> in and say, yeah, we're going to make it or it's going to happen. And I think of that as irrational. Yeah, this is informed hope, though. So, yeah. Another question back here. Well, so 
to sort of piggyback on that, um, I, I think one thing that's evident in the conversation around climate change yeah. is the ten there's a tension between this rational assessment of the situation versus our pessimism and hope. Mm. And there's such an avoidance of pessimism, I mean, an avoidance of despair, yeah. because we want to have hope, but then your definition of hope was about you know, having a reasonable expectation you're gonna have a significant impact. Right. But then we keep asking people to be hopeful that a rational assessment will say, well, it's not gonna actually be a significant impact. Mm -hmm. You know, so we can be, I, I'm pessimistic in the sense that the, I don't see the ice cap not melting, yeah. but you know, I can be optimistic that something else will come along, but not optimistic that my choice to drive here or not is gonna have a significant impact on that. Okay, so, so, so I mean, the, but the nuance around how it relates to the individual, yeah. this more nuanced hope is a really, really important conversation. So, you know, uh, but yeah, how much do we need to make sure we don't slip into this uninformed, irrational, irrational yeah. not assessing the, not assigning a little probabilities yeah. to our, to where we place our hope. Okay, so you know, they answer, the Shaw Psychedem said, don't answer, that system's not gonna work. I'll find a different way of getting at it. Yeah. You know? So I think it's key to recognize that I never said that anything you take on in terms of hope changes your assessment of the probabilities. It's merely possible, in fact, it's incredibly unlikely that you're gonna make some significant threshold change, right? But the thought is, it's at least possible. And instead of irrationally leaping into faith that you are going to make some sort of big significant change, if you do this hope thing, which is voluntary, you can focus in the way I was suggesting on that thing and image it and fantasize. That will motivate you. Totally concur for okay. like riding your bike, but for having a significant impact on the whole thing, like then mm -hmm. it's don't keep thinking riding your bike is where the hope is. How much do we remember to look like? raise the bar on what we're looking for. Yeah, so what I'm saying is not this choice. I mean, that would be, you should maximize the, pot, the probabilities, right? So let's say all of your choices and the people who you can influence. Let's say, you know, this kind of hope might be that one of those choices makes a significant <coughs> difference. And that might still be enough to motivate. Thank you. I like the one. idea of action being a, a determinant here because um, I was around and, and was in the thick of the communes that were starting up in the 60s and 70s, and these were based sort of on a despair about civilization. I was born in one of those. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I was. Hear what I have to say and say where, where you okay. played in that. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of us, uh, people who gave up in civilization and went off mostly to rural situations to uh, basically reinvent civilization, and we were taking action. And, Showing that free love would work, that you know, distributing money would work, that you could build uh, geodesic domes and they wouldn't leak, and uh, anybody could garden. <laughs> and, um, universal failure. Uh, lots learned. And uh, one of the things we learned is that civilization wasn't so bad <laughs> compared to our alternative. Uh, and <laughs> we all came back to town and started businesses, by and large. Um, so did my parents. And or, you know, went on the school board and you know, did effective things. Because yeah. we went on and did something, and it failed in interesting ways, yeah. and in you know, profoundly engaging ways. And, and uh, you know, it's like being in the Peace Corps. If you've been in a commune or a kibbutz or whatever, you've really been through something and learned a lot of lessons you apply to the rest of your life. The people who had that kind of idealism of despair about civilization who did not act on it, 
became really boring cynics. Mm -hmm. And That's so I think you know that that this having the personal engagement of just screw it, let's do it. Um, the, the world will sort you out, you know? and uh, and not only sort you out, but it'll it'll give you stuff that no matter what it is you attempted, will be useful in whatever it is you try the next few times. We have a last question up there. Yeah, yeah I, I think the temporal uh, perspective here is is crucial, yeah. and and it harkens on to the big concern that I have that people who are hopeful and are trying to be change agents, hmm. all of a sudden realize that their efforts are thwarted, and therefore they become despairing. Hmm. But what is the worldview that, that would lead to that? I, I think it's a worldview of, of a lack of a temporal perspective. Because you know, when you think about the long-term uh, issues, it's kind of like things work for a period of time, and hmm. then they don't work. And indeed, hmm. life is a roller coaster, right? So mm -hmm. sometimes things are up, and sometimes you go back down. And, and, but as soon as you're down, you realize that you're going to go back up again. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the concept of hope has to be considered within the context of a worldview. And a worldview which would suggest that, hey, I've been hopeful. I've tried to affect change. I've failed, and therefore I'm going to be despairing. That's not the right hope. That's not the right worldview. An alternative, which is consistent with Buddhist philosophy, mm. yin and yang, things go well for a, a period of time, and then they, they don't go very well, or consistent with uh, Christian theology, you know, when one door closes, another one opens. I mean, I think that's what mm. life is all about, and that's what hope is all about. Mm. So you're hopeful that something is going to happen at a particular point in time. You get shut down completely, but do you go to despair? No, I think you go to acceptance that this is the way life is. I'm not going to I'm not going to you know completely abandon what I'm hope what I'm hoping for, but I understand as you say the thresh you know the threshold point or I would say just the the yin and yang of life is such that okay, I've been shut down this time. So I'm just going to keep going and maybe next year or maybe 2 years down the line things are going to be different and I'm going to be more successful. So I would like both of you to talk about the, what I think is the crucial issue here, which is the temporality of hope mm. and, and also what the worldview is mm. that leads people to despair and not being hopeful. Mm. I mean, I think what you were describing is something close to my position, a hopeful pessimism. Like, it does look as though many doors are going to close, but you keep focusing on at least the possibility that some good will, some big good will result from at least one of your actions over a long period of time. And fixate on that tenaciously and let that motivate you psychologically to keep on keeping on. So in a way, it's very consonant with the picture. I do think that the thing about, I mean, the Eastern tradition is complicated and rich, but the Buddhist tradition, in my view anyway, goes a little closer to the Stoics and the Greek tradition in that mm -hmm. they suggest that we shouldn't hope and <coughs> shouldn't be optimistic, right? But rather only go for the things that you can control. The Greek term, ataraxia, tranquility, the Stoics say. All you can do is control your character, your responses, your intentions. That's all you should look to. Don't hope because that will lead to fear and disappointment. That, I think, isn't consonant with the picture that I was portraying. Yeah. You know, the one that 
the Greek, I guess, anyway, the ancient philosopher that appeals to me is Lucretius. Yeah. So here's a you know, hard over pessimist in a way, an empiricist in a way, and uh, don't believe these silly stories about afterlives and gods mm -hmm. and all that mm -hmm. junk. Um, and he's a pretty chipper guy. Uh, I mean, you know, he, he, he lived near the edge uh, in town and was in a way more persuasive because of that. Um, he was, I would see him as a tragic optimist, actually. And one worth paying attention to, and you know, sort of on the side, he invented atom or spread the atomic theory um, rather early in history. Yep. You never know who's going to be right. <laughs> stuff like that. So uh, Andrew's going to stick around. So there, I know there are more questions, and there'll be more time for Andrew to sign his books um, as well. We've got a little I, something for you. Oh, there's one more thing I wanted. So and one more thing I need to yeah. do. The grant that I'm part of, we had a big conference a couple weeks ago, and we got some swag. And I had an extra piece of swag. And I thought, in gratitude to Stuart for coming out and doing this, and talking with me and moderating, I would give you the, uh, <laughs> some of the. <laughs> You'll wear it better than I do. <laughs> and I have for you our very own challenge coin, which you will see uh, in Latin on the back, Carpe, Carpe Millennium, Millennium, which is the domain where optimism wins. Thanks. Thanks a lot. <laughs>